beginning at verse 21. And if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, in the Pew in front of you, the page to turn to would be page 782. The reading this morning describes the last few weeks of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Indeed, Paul, if you remember, has just been stoned in Antioch and dragged outside the city and left for dead. He and Barnabas were gathered the next day, and they made their way to Derby. The story continues. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Please stay right there in your Bibles, if you would. Thanks, Kevin. We've been going through the book of Acts, looking at the different things that uh, the apostles were doing, missionaries were doing, and this text continues the story in a very significant way. There are three things I want to point out just here at the beginning that I think you might be interested in, at least they interested me. If you look at verse 3, notice it says that they mention, the, the text specifically mentions that miracles, wondrous signs were being done in the early church, and this is an interesting issue. We kind of got into this on our, uh, in our small group on Thursday night, talking a bit about the whole notion of wondrous signs and miracles that were occurring. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen a miracle lately. There's a chance that none of you have. I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago this idea of, the, of it raining after I'd prayed. Not long after I'd been with some people, I prayed, and then it, uh, they were in a drought situation and it rained. Well, I, is that a miracle? Somebody would say that's coincidence. It's coincidence that all of a sudden that thunderstorm broke open and it began to rain. But I wonder. It makes sense to me that it might be a miracle. Um, Don't want to get too much into that this morning. My own thought about miracles is simply this, and I don't think this is the heart of the text at all. It's simply this, that God is certainly free to do what he wants to do. And that means that if he chooses to operate in a way differently today than he did back then, that also is God's free choice. So he may choose to work in that way back then. He may choose to work in that way now. But when he does, it'll be God's choice, not mine. And when it happens, I will rejoice if it happens. I'm not sure that God chooses to do that as much now as he might have used to have chosen to do that. But that's God's decision on that. Verse 4, look at that. Paul and Barnabas, it says, are both called apostles. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that there are more apostles than just the 12. But this specifically says uh, that Barnabas was an apostle. He's called an apostle in other places. James, the brother of Jesus, is called an apostle in other places. And that's a different apostle than James, the brother of John. And so we know that there were some other apostles besides just the 12. 
Uh, the word apostle simply means one who is sent in the name of the Lord. And these guys were sent in the name of the Lord and they were functioning in the early church as those who had a special task as those who were sent out. Then look at verse 23. Notice it says specifically that the church and the apostles were praying and fasting. We've kind of drawn attention to this several times, just the fact that the church spent a lot of time in prayer and they spent a lot of time in fasting. This seems to be much more prevalent in the New Testament church, I think, than even I thought it was. I've read through the book of Acts numerous times. I don't know if it's jumped out at me as much at other times as this time in terms of fasting and the role this has in the life of the church. We may want to take this more seriously than we do. And then also in verse 23, it says specifically they appointed elders in each church. And of course, John mentioned this morning, the fact that we're going to be interested in doing that here. So we want to take seriously this idea of elders being appointed in each church. I'll say a little bit more about that here in just a moment. Well, we finished last week with joy that comes to Christians when they share the gospel. But one of the things I appreciate about the book of Acts is that it doesn't tell only half the story. It tells the whole story. And it tells, in addition to the joy, it also talks specifically about the hardships that sometimes sometimes come to those of us who are working to spread the gospel. And so if you are working to spread the gospel, I would love to be able to say that it's all going to be a bed of roses. That would all be fantastic. But the fact is, that's not the case. And this story in Acts chapter 14, bears that out in a significant way. You know, today is Super Bowl Sunday, just in case you didn't know. And at the end of the game today, there's going to be one team that is declared the winner. There's going to be one team that is declared the loser. And it will look like on the surface for the team that wins that there's nothing but joy because now they're the Super Bowl champions. And it will look like for the defeated that there's nothing but sorrow and grief because they've lost. But do you know what's going to happen on Monday for those people who won the Super Bowl? Probably three quarters of them are going to spend the day with ice on their knees. They're going to have to put up with the pain and the ache of what they experienced this afternoon. I don't know at all this new tight end for the New England Patriots, Gronkowski. But I know that he has a high ankle sprain. And I know that because he has a high ankle sprain, and if he plays today, that tomorrow he's going to wake up in a great deal of pain because somebody's going to put a needle in his ankle this afternoon and they're going to shoot him up so that he can play and he'll play with that medication in his ankle. And then he'll wake up tomorrow and the medication won't be there when he first wakes up. Or maybe they'll give him more and it will be. But at any rate, this guy and others are going to have to experience an awful lot of agony in order to get the joy that they also want to get. And somebody's going to receive. Now maybe in Gronkowski's case, he'll lose. He's going to get it doubly bad. <laughs> But at, at any rate, there is joy for one side, not so much for the other. There are sacrifices, though, that go along with that. Well, the book of Acts is in this way kind of like a documentary in terms of chronology, 
chronicling the way in which the church spreads the gospel and they go through both the wonderful times, the blessings of joy, and the hardship. And that's what I want to look at here for just a moment. Look at uh, the first few verses here. Chapter 14, it says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. Now that looks at the surface like, praise the Lord! There are people believing. Great numbers of Jews and Gentiles, it says, are believing. And there's just this wonderful joy that comes to those who have that kind of result. Verse 2, But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with Jews, others with apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. Now they end up leaving the city before it happens, but there is a plot afoot. There's joy in great numbers coming to Christ. But there is the agony, the hardship of having this be extremely dangerous work. Now, I don't know how long they stayed, by the way. It says that they stayed a considerable time among them. Can you imagine staying a considerable time among a people who eventually are trying to kill you? You're preaching the good news of Jesus. And as you preach Christ, they're making plots to take your life, but you intentionally choose to stay among them despite the fact that they're going to take your life or trying to. Why would you do that? Of course, there's only one reason. It's because Paul and Barnabas thought that to have the gospel shared among these people was absolutely crucial, crucial to the point of it's worth the risk of my life. Now look at verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. And then Paul goes on and heals this person. And so there's joy there in the healing of this individual. But then verse 11 says, right after that, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. And they begin to make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. So in this case, there's success in the performance of a miracle and there are people who are coming to Christ. But the thing that goes along with it is they think you're a god. And at first glance, that might seem to be kind of a cool thing. But very quickly, I think that turns to agony for Paul and Barnabas as as they realize that the message that they're preaching and trying to convey is being totally distorted in the minds of the people. They're not getting it. They don't get it at all. And so there's a problem with The reception of the message. They want people to come to Christ, of course. But it's not working uh, as they had planned. Now God has left himself with a testimony to people. And so there are people who come to Christ. Um, Paul continues to preach. But then in verse 19, look at this. Then some Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. And so there's a plan conceived over in verse 5 that we're going to stone this character for coming and preaching about Jesus. And in verse 19, they follow him to a new city. And there in the new city where he's again preaching, they find out, oh, he's here, he's preaching the same kind of message. And they actually carry out the plan and end up stoning Paul because he's preached the good news about Jesus. 
And so there are good things that happen when a person begins to preach about Jesus, the people are going to come. They might even treat you like a God, but that ends up not being such a good thing. The gospel's in the process is being distorted. And then, of course, they end up stoning him. And so there's hardship, great hardship involved in proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Then notice in verse 21. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. And so it sounds very good that they've gone to Derby. Good things have happened there. Then they decide to return along the route that they've been preaching. And so it says that then they return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, which they had to do. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. Now, this is fascinating. These people have not been Christians for very long. They are immediately challenged with persecution upon their becoming Christians. To the point where Paul and Barnabas, they themselves, Paul is stoned, left for dead by the people who stoned him. And then they decide that they really need to go back through the cities where they preached. Why would they do that? Because these brand new Christians are going to be faced with the same people who have just got done stoning Paul. They go back to the same cities. And it's not as though all the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who had refused to believe, it's not as though they were suddenly vacating the premises and heading out of the country when Paul and Barnabas left. They're still there. And so you have brand new Christians, baby Christians, who are just understanding what it means to be a Christian, having to endure, I don't think without a doubt, persecution from the Jews and Gentiles who are their neighbors. And who are now turning on them because of their newfound faith and persecuting them because they have given themselves to Jesus. It's no wonder that Paul and Barnabas thought it was absolutely crucial that they enter into this whole event with prayer and fasting. It's no wonder that they would say, we need to commit you to the Lord. They had to be committed to the Lord. They had to be praying and fasting because everywhere around these brand new Christians was persecution. And I wonder, it doesn't say this, there's no record in the text, but I wonder if any of those new Christians were dragged outside the city and stoned the way that Paul was. It wouldn't surprise me. This was a group who'd already shown that they were willing to go and kill someone who was preaching about Jesus. And if these new Christians were going to be spreading their new faith at all, good possibility that they were going to experience the hardship of also being stoned in the same way that Paul was stoned as they themselves gave their lives to Jesus. So that's what happens in this case when people preach about Jesus. It's amazing to me the kind of things that were demanded of these young Christians. Brief encounter with the gospel. Some of them are almost immediately given elders' responsibilities, and then they're forced to endure persecution all at the same time. How in the world did they do it? Like we know they did it. 
We know that they persevered because these churches continued to persevere. We know that they persevered because the church continued to grow. And so these new Christians who were being persecuted and who had had a a huge amount of responsibility all of a sudden dumped in their laps had to have, must have responded to the call. How did it happen? How were they able to do that? You just put yourself in their positions for a moment. What would that be like? Well, verse 23, I think, gives us a clue as to how these people were able to do this. The text specifically says, as I've already mentioned, that they were in the business of praying and fasting. And I think this has a huge impact on the church's strength. They can then persevere in ways that they couldn't otherwise because of the prayer and fasting. It's an inherently spiritual mindset that they inherit from Paul and Barnabas. They knew they were being appointed to a task that was going to bring on them persecution, but they entertain it. They're willing to say yes. And I think it's because there's a spiritual mindset here, a holy spiritual mindset, that the Holy Spirit is working right with them, leading them along, taking them to places that they couldn't possibly go on their own, giving them a strength that they couldn't have by themselves because God is blessing them and is with them. Recently, I was watching a documentary on the Vietnam War. And uh, they were interviewing, of course, this is an elderly gentleman now, but at the time, he was a lieutenant in the U.S. military. And they were asking him, what were the most difficult things about being in Vietnam? You know, you're a 25-year-old lieutenant, and you're there in in a horrific situation. What was the most difficult thing about being there in that context? And you know, and you think, well, maybe it's the bombs or it's the threat that somebody's going to put a bullet in you or, you know, whatever it is. And here's what he said. He said the most difficult thing was being in a position of command and ordering men to go carry out an objective that you knew was going to get them killed. Literally sending men to their death. In the case of the Vietnam War, in the case of the U.S. military, the soldiers who go into battle, in one sense, have no choice. They have to be obedient. The lieutenant says, here's the hill that we have to take. And he may not say, and you're going to die in the process, but they probably know that. But because it's the military, because you carry out orders, you go. Well, this isn't the military. The church is not a situation where someone says, go, and everybody says, yes, we obediently go. The church is the kind of organization where God says, I need you. And these people who already know what happened to Paul, who already have been listening to the things that their friends and neighbors around them are saying, who already get it in terms of what this may cost them, these people, from what we can tell, 
went. And were willing to carry out these roles. There was no chain of command that forced this on them. They were simply willing to risk their lives for the cause of Jesus. And verse 23, by the way, tells me exactly why I think they were able to do this. Look again at the verse. It specifically says that the apostles committed them to the Lord in whom they trusted. Some translations will say in whom they believed. What is it that led them into battle for Christ? It was what they believed. And they believed it so firmly, they believed it so strongly, they believed it with all of their hearts, and it enabled them to then venture forth for him, knowing that they may well lose their lives in the process. I think that's significant. I don't know that the gospel is going to cost you your life. It probably won't. But the gospel is going to cost you something. If you take seriously your faith, if we pour ourselves into reaching people in our community for Jesus, it's going to cost you something. At the very least, it's going to cost you your time. It may cost you your money. It may cost you your reputation. It's the Jesus freak. But God, I think, expects from us, he wants from us exactly what he wanted and expected from them. The beautiful thing is this. If it's belief that enabled them to carry it out, then it's our belief that will enable us to carry it out. And we have, we share the same belief. And with that belief in hand, with that belief in mind, with that belief filling our hearts and our lives, we're enabled to do the kind of things that they did for the cause of Christ. We're going to be able to overcome hardship. We're going to be able to put ourselves to the task. And God is going to bless us. The last thing I want you to notice is verse 27. It says that they return to Antioch and they report on what God had done through them, opening a door to the Gentiles. Now, if I was just kind of standing aside and heard the report about what God had done among them, I'd probably be saying to myself something like, what God did among you? Are you kidding? Paul was taken outside the city and stoned. All these people have become Christians. They're they're now persecuted by their friends and neighbors. What do you mean what God has done among them? But that wasn't their attitude. Instead, they saw what God had done among them. God had opened a door to the Gentiles. And yes, it may cost you your life. It may cost you your relationships. You might find yourself in your community isolated, maybe even persecuted. But praise the Lord. God is working among us as he's doing something through his power to bring his word into a lost world that needs him. And so rather than throwing up their hands in despair. 
you get this report that's a, it's a positive report. God has been working among us. Forget the stoning, that's not important. Ignore that persecution, that's not important. We've been isolated by our community and lost our friendships. Those things don't mean anything. What's important is that people are starting to hear about Jesus. And they're excited because the gospel is going out. Oh, I think God wants that from us. And because we believe the same things, because God is still there, because his Holy Spirit still wants to work in the lives of the church, we have every opportunity to see fulfilled among us the same kinds of things that were fulfilled among them. And I'm not talking about the persecution. I'm not talking about the stoning. I'm talking about the possibility of the word going forth so that we can say, God has been doing things. I believe he will. We're trying to, uh, this new thing of having me close the service with a prayer. So we're going to try that again this morning. I want to lead us in a prayer that, that will take us to places where we haven't been in our lives. In terms of honoring him by going into the world with the good news of Jesus, willing able to speak to others about him. I believe that God will bless us as we do that together. So let me lead us in that prayer. Would you bow with me, please? Holy Father, as we leave from this place this morning, God, we recognize that we're going forth, every one of us, into your mission field. And our names aren't necessarily Paul or Barnabas. We don't have uh, the same lives that they had. Our experiences are different. But Father, we share with them a common faith. We share with them you. We share with them your Holy Spirit present within us. And so God, I would pray that you'd bless each one to be filled with your spirit as we go from here. Recognizing the call that we have, every one of us, to go to those who don't know Jesus And communicate his love to them. Strengthen us. Embolden us. Empower us. We pray through Jesus. Amen.